0: So after all that great testimony and joyful reporting, um, uh, and we've got now like the judgment of God,
1: a bit of judgment,
0: (laughs) but not on us, I think. (laughs) So, so thanks for joining us for uh, our second week of the Minor Prophets. Um, While everybody's all cooped up at home and claiming the Psalms and Revelation, we want to do something a little bit different. Uh, that you might not uh, maybe try to tackle on your own. But today, we're actually going to do an entire book of the Bible. (laughs) And I hope that you have read it um, prior to our session. Um, It's not all great news, but it does end well uh, in the very end with God as king over all the world. So uh, that's where we're headed OK, it's kind of like, you know, Holy Week where it's, you know, bad news and suffering. But Easter's coming. Right. Isn't that what we say? Did you like how I did that?
1: Yeah, great. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. We didn't practice that. <laughs> All right. So so majoring on the minors and uh, the minor prophets. So this doesn't seem to be go on to
0: the next one. There you go.
1: Let's see if it'll it. So we're doing Obadiah. There he is. And there he is.
0: Do you see his sign that he's holding? It has Edom crossed out. So that's his main message.
1: So um, we have quite a bit of information on the front end. Uh, Obadiah, probably the most controversial um, issue in looking at the book of Obadiah is the dating of Obadiah. And uh, I have probably more information than we could cover in the 30 minutes on the dating of Obadiah, but we're not going to bore you too much with that um, except just to note that that scholars are not agreed on when Obadiah wrote or um, which invasion of Judah because he is addressing the aftermath of an invasion with Judah, which invasion of Judah Uh, To which he is referring so I've listed the possibilities there Uh, you can see uh, Some of them you may not even remember or have heard of some of them Maybe you uh, do recognize from the Bible
0: probably not from Sunday school like Growing up these were not covered in VBS.
1: Well, probably not she shack anyway (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the they are discussed in the Bible, like Shishak's invasion is in First Kings 14 and Second Chronicles 12. Uh, the invasion by Assyria into Judah, which was not a full-scale invasion, because you may recall this, a, uh, a plague hit the Assyrian army and they had to go home, or hit hit Assyria and the army had to go home. Uh, we, and don't,
0: we don't think it was COVID-19, but something.
1: Wow. Okay, so <laughs> we didn't practice that either. Second Kings, uh, it's in Second Kings 20 and uh, Second Chronicles 32. That's described. It's probably not the Assyrian invasion because they didn't take Jerusalem. Jerusalem was spared. Um, so when we look at which one, which of these various invasions it might have been that Obadiah deals with, I think it it sort of boils down to two. Um, probably either Egypt's invasion during Rehoboam's reign, which was Shishak. Uh, so Jeroboam, you might recall Jeroboam the first, who was the first ruler in Israel, the Northern Kingdom, at one point. He had to flee to Egypt uh, before uh, Rehoboam uh, caused dissension among the northern tribes, and he sought protection with Shishak. Then later, Shishak came and invaded uh, Judah, and he did sack Jerusalem and uh, take the implements from the temple. Um, the Babylonians in 586 B.C., this is sort of the major uh, conquest of Jerusalem, because you may recall they destroyed the temple, they carried the people into captivity, and of course the major, uh, several of the major prophets talk quite a bit about this, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel later uh, in actual exile um, prophesying. So a lot of, uh, a lot, and I would say maybe most scholars today think that the Babylonian exile is the time uh, referred to, In 586 B.C., and there's even uh, in exile, they were still remembering something the Edomites did to Judah and uh, lamenting it. And so many scholars think that's the reference. We're covering Obadiah first because we just don't know. It might have actually been considerably earlier, as you see there, 930 B.C. would be one of the earliest Of the prophets of the minor prophets
0: yeah so basically right after Solomon
1: right Rehoboam's right
0: but it might be later
1: okay so we'll move on from dating yeah so when you think of um, Obadiah think a prophecy against Edom a prophecy against Edom so uh, we have an outline here uh, of the book, um, or a rough outline. Some of this is based, kind of, on a on a message that I have done uh, earlier at an earlier time. But uh, we have sort of the introduction of the prophecy against Edom. You're going to have it reiterated at the end of the book as well. And then uh, Edom's sin, uh, the sort of like the charge against Edom. What was their sin? And then what were the specific actions Edom took against Judah? Basically, Edom. Uh, commits violence and uh, sin against the southern kingdom Judah when uh, Judah is attacked by an enemy and their people are killed and their uh, wealth is taken. So is going to talk a little bit about the introduction.
0: So as we get into Obadiah, basically what we see is that through the prophet, God just starts laying into Edom, okay? Um, So at first, the first thing that he talks about is how Edom, who is very proud, will be brought low. And so he says, if you have Obadiah there in front of you, uh, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise up against her for battle." Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, even from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So... Edom, who lives up high, and we'll see some pictures a little later, they literally live up high, they will be brought low by the Lord. So uh, that's, that's a pretty stern beginning. And then he goes on. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you've been destroyed, will they not steal only for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to, the, to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. <coughs> They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. So what he's saying to Edom is that basically Edom is going to be cleaned out. Like um, he says, you know, when when um, harvesters come, even they leave some stuff behind. They're not thorough, thorough right or when um, thieves come they come and they steal what they want and they leave the rest but God is saying that Edom is going to be sometimes as we say picked clean they're going to be utterly um, despoiled so to speak um, and so the reason for this um, becomes clear um, a little bit later in the um, a little bit later in the book um, he He then goes on in verse 8 to say, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall need O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So Teman is um, a place, a name, a place, both, that you have seen before. Um, I don't know if you recall it. Uh, The city of Teman in... um, in Edom which was about 15 miles from a city called Petra that I think some of you probably have visited uh, about 15 miles away it was named after a grandson of Esau so you saw the word the name Esau mentioned here and um, the city, city of Teman had a reputation for having a lot of wise people wise men sages and this was for them a reason for pride so Teman actually may have, had, may have had this reputation in ancient times because one of the sages who came from Teman to comfort our suffering friend Job was a man named Eliphaz, as it calls him, the Temanite. And so in this text, uh, God is going to turn things around for Edom, and so Edom will have no understanding <laughs> Um, they think that they're so wise, and yet in the very midst of them, there will, be, there will come um, treachery, uh, some kind of a, a betrayal. They'll, he says a trap is set beneath you. Um, the, the wise amount of Edom will be destroyed. There will be no understanding on Mount Esau, and everybody will be cut off by slaughter. So secure Edom will be destroyed, and wise Edom will be deceived. So the tables will be turned on Edom. And so we wonder, my goodness, what has brought about this kind of judgment on Edom?
1: Okay, I guess that's my cue. It is. So, so, um, so again, thinking about the book, we start with judgment. We're going to end with judgment, but also mercy at the end of the book. And again, it's, again, a judgment on the, uh, the nation of Edom, which are descendants of Esau, right? So you remember the story of Jacob and Esau. What I want to suggest, or what I would suggest, is that uh, when we think about what was it that Eden, Edom did, what was their sin, it's more than just the specific actions that are going to be laid out in the book. Um, in verse 10, he says this, he says, because of violence to your brother, Jacob, so it has to do with, there's, there's something with that relationship between Esau and Jacob that comes up. And uh, so we have to reflect back or think back, in, I think, in order to understand Obadiah. We have to think back to the relationship between Jacob and Esau. And so I've sort of outlined some of the key uh, interactions just to remind us of sort of that story from Genesis. So, you know, when they're born, um, there's a prophecy given uh, to their mom about two nations are in there, and one, the, the younger will, will serve the elder. So these two brothers, they're, they're twins, they're born the same day. Sure. Es-
0: the elder will serve the younger.
1: The elder will serve the younger. I'm sorry if I said it backwards. But, yeah, the, the, the younger will rule over the elder. And uh, you recall Esau uh, comes out first, and then Jacob later grasping the heel, and he is um, is named the heel grasper. Can also be understood as trickster. Um, but you recall there's a number of there are number of interactions with the brothers that creates a, a significant amount of animosity between them, to the extent that Jacob fears for his life and runs away. Um, so uh, you see there on the on the screen. The selling of the birthright, right? We all remember that, where Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of?
0: Red stew.
1: Stew, right? Or chili, we might say, and <laughs> lentil stew. And, but what's, in, what's interesting in that story, look at the verse, in verse 34, the quote there. It's, it summarizes Esau's whole attitude about his birthright. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. Right so it wasn't just that he was hungry i mean you know we all have have been hungry after being out on a on a big hunt or working hard or doing something right and it wasn't just that he was hungry and it wasn't just that he he you know deferred to his younger brother or something it was despising his birthright means i would suggest a total rejection of the promise of god to abraham Through Isaac as the child of promise, who was his father. So the birthright would have been to inherit the covenant promise and be the carrier of the covenant promise. In other words, to reject the birthright is to reject God's whole plan and God's call upon Abraham and his descendants. In other words, Esau didn't want to be or didn't care about being that descendant to carry on that covenant promise by which God was going to bless all of humanity. I think we have somebody trying to come in.
0: Oh, Sorry, we're,
1: out. we're trying to accept a couple here. Okay, so, so we see that. In addition, we also see this as this despising his birthright is sort of, um, illustrative of Esau's attitude towards the covenant altogether. So consider, for example, Esau's wives versus uh, Jacob's. Right? Esau marries initially Hittite women, which causes a lot of ups- uh, a lot of upheaval in his family, a lot of
0: uh, a lot of trouble with the mother-in-law.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> His his mom is very upset about it um, to the extent that she says to, to Jacob, go to our close kin and go find a, a proper wife, right? A wife who uh, is from the bloodline of the covenant. Um, so what does Esau do to try and repair this? He goes and he marries an Ishmaelite woman. Still... He's closer, but he's not quite there, right? He still doesn't, he's he's not spiritually mature enough to understand God's calling on Abraham and the importance of protecting that bloodline um, and the inheritance of the covenant promise. In other words, he's not a person of faith. Jacob, even for his tricking and his uh, conniving, he's still a man who understands Faith, he understands the importance of God's calling on his grandfather and God's plan for humanity and for the whole creation that we talked about last week. And that's why he is still a person of faith. And so anyway, Jacob, uh, he, he gets he gets the birthright. He also tricks their father into getting the blessing. This is what causes um, Esau to want to kill him, and uh, Jacob has to flee for his life. We know Jacob is gone for a number of years, and he, he gets married. And then when he finds out his brother's coming with a large army, he's very scared. You might recall this story. The, the gist of it, though, is that when they are reunited, it's not one where there's conflict or a battle or Jacob's life is uh, at risk, but rather Esau weeps. He embraces him and they enter into we're not told there's a formal covenant relationship, but they enter into a kind of relationship that seems like they had a peace and ag- a peace covenant or an agreement that. Um, such that their descendants should honor it from this day forward because of Abraham, because of God's promise. This is what we're told in Genesis 32 and 33.
0: And so for, the, for those who care about um, um, linguistic kinds of things, Esau and Edom are kind of um, interchangeable. And um, Esau means red. And so it's interesting in the story where he sells the birthright or, you know, gives up his birthright for a bowl of red stew that it's like, well, that's just like him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's a red hairy guy and this is a red stew. And um, anyway, so so that that uh, name is um, just kind of kind of interesting. There. So Esau and Edom are interchangeable in this text as well, just as they are in the uh, original Genesis um, account. So so they buried the hatchet. Right.
1: Oops, okay. So so my argument is that Edom's sin, the sin of the nation, is actually a rejection of God's plan and uh, and a rejection of God's covenant. This is consistent with their forefather Esau. Right. And so um, so that's their sin. Now, what about the actions they took? We read this um uh summarized in verse 11 where he says you were like one of them but they 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 did several things and then they they didn't do some things right so first they engage in some passive sins by not helping the judeans in their day of trouble when this invading unnamed invading army right now like i said either the egyptians or the babylonians probably when this invading army came and was chasing down the people and uh, killing them and defeating them and sacking the city, the Edomites looked on from their place of comfort, as stephana said, from on high. And they even de- seemed to have derived pleasure from the defeat of Judah and from the suffering of the Judeans. And so that's why uh, God says through Obadiah, you're just like the Egyptians or Babylonians here.
0: Just like the enemy. You
1: were just like the enemy of Judah. Um, just to give us some context or some some idea or some some imagery of what it looks like, where the Edomites lived and what Edom looked like, um, I've, I've got a few photographs here. So these are pictures from the wilderness. You, can, you might be able to see some caves in this picture. I've got some closer pictures. These are pictures in Edom. You see the mm-hmm. caves there, the people were living in caves. Um, is this is Jordan. This is in Jordan. Yeah, this is in Jordan. By the way, Eden, Edom is in uh, modern-day Jordan. This is uh, Petra in Jordan that you can visit today if you are able to travel. Um, so you can see that the city is carved into the side of the mountain, and the people are, are living, you know, in in, in caves. Uh, on the side of the mountain, where they could look down on the people and see what's you know see the the, the destruction wrought. It appears that what what probably happened militarily is that um, the the people of Judah fled to Edom for uh, hope of security, and instead, as they fled, uh, the pursuing army simply cut them down, and the Edomites didn't help at all. Um, these are just more pictures just to give you an idea when he talks about them looking down from the clefts of the rocks. This is what he's talking about here.
0: So this is how they're living up high and God says, I will bring you low. I'll bring you down.
1: So they did nothing to help uh, the Jude- Judeans. Secondly, they they actively worked um I have Edomites there. That's a typo. I meant actively worked against the Judeans. Sorry, that should say Judeans. So they prevented the Judeans from escaping. Um, they killed, they actually participated in ha- cutting down some of the Judeans. And then they helped uh, capture uh, Judeans so that they might be enslaved. And in fact, I've got one more photograph here. This, uh, this is a photograph of one part where you can see where if you had a large army or a large civilian population fleeing a, a pursuing army, where this these mountains could actually serve as a bottleneck, where you could either uh, come through and then turn around and mount a good defense, kind of like in the movie 300, the way the Spartans did with the larger Persian army. Uh, you might recall that, right? They can use the mountains as a, as a bottleneck to to force the, the army to only have a few people on the front. But it could also serve as a bottleneck for a fleeing uh, population or army, whereby the the uh, Edomites could stop the Judeans and then they would be caught in between. And that's what it seems like happened here. So they actively worked against the Edomites uh, in, involved in specific actions. Now, I this raises an, raises an interesting question because if the, it raises the question then, are the sins themselves preventing the escape and killing some of the Judeans and helping enslave the Judeans itself, the sin that, that brings on God's judgment, or was it the broader rejection of the covenant? And I would say a little of both. Um, but we do see Israel... Uh, in their conquest of Canaan, doing some of these same things. So while oftentimes we might think those actions are sinful in themselves, sometimes God uh, commended and required the people of Israel to, for example, wipe out whole cities or whole nations, right, in the conquest of Canaan. That's what happens. So rather I would suggest that, uh, again, Edom's primary sin was in rejecting God's covenant, and the promises to Abraham. Well, here at the end, we're almost out of time. I want to highlight the wrath, justice, and mercy of God at the end of the book. The wrath is already obvious. We've already talked about that, God's judgment on Edom at the beginning, introduced, and then again reiterated here at the end in verses 15, 16, and then 18. Um, interestingly, if if Babylon was the invading army, um, if if it was during the Babylonian time, interestingly enough, Edom, you see there, fell to Babylon about 30 years later, just about 30 years later, Um, and, and this sort of goes well with verse 15 here, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Well, what happened to Jerusalem and what happened to Judah also happened to Edom just within about 30 years. But we also, and this is not so obvious in the book, we also see the mercy of God in verses 18 and following. And this raises the, the, the notion of the day of the Lord, Which right? I'm going to talk the day of the Lord is a day of judgment but in throughout the prophets, but it's not always and only a day of judgment. It's a mixture of judgment and mercy. It looks it looks back at, at judgment, but it also looks forward to restoration. And so, uh, on this slide, we see Jerusalem or Mount Zion being established in verses 17 and 18. And um, and and that, in spite of the fact, if the, if this was the Babylonian invasion, if you go and look in Jeremiah, Babylon was an instrument of God's judgment on Judah for its sin. So yet. Even then, God is promising restoration after an exile. Also in verses 19 through 21, the Jews will possess the land.
0: So um, let me just talk a little bit about the day of the Lord, because this is a theme that comes up um, in a number of the prophets, the minor prophets and the major prophets, the less minor. Um, If you look in the text um, from about verses 12 and, and forward um, there's this um, this refrain that is that that comes up frequently in almost every phrase um, and it's about a day so first it's talking about the day of, of misfortune of Judah and so in um, in verse 12 uh, it talks about um, the day of your brother the day of his misfortune the day of their ruin the day of distress Verse 13, the day of his calamity is repeated three times, the day of his calamity, um, the day of his distress. And then in verse 15, I mean, it was kind of like a gathering storm. And in verse 15, Edom just gets slammed and and gets told by Obadiah, the day of the Lord is near. There is a day of the Lord, and that's going to come upon you. It's going to wash right over you. It's going to clean you out. As you have done, it will be done to you, and your deeds will be on your own head so um as there was a day of distress uh for judah there will also be a day of judgment for edom and for other enemies so in that icon of obadiah that we showed um in one of the first couple of slides it has there, um kind of in this uh this this uh text the little p- papyrus roll there this verse the day of the lord is near upon all the nations so not just not just edom but upon all the nations. So Edom and other enemies that are enemies of God and enemies of Israel. So there will come a day of restitution where you get back what you doled out. Um, Also a day of restoration. So where, um, uh, Judah will be restored and a day of rulership of divine rulership where there's no King named here, but in the end the Lord is the one who's going to be the King. So I just want to talk a tiny bit about, um, about Edom and their punishment. So Edom's punishment somehow becomes a little bit symbolic of the way that all nations who are proud and haughty and who vaunt themselves against God will be punished. And um, then there's this verse, a very disturbing verse, I think, verse 16 um, that says, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. It's like three phrases there that all revolve around the word drink. And so when we think about This kind of um, drinking, there's a drinking of celebration to see that your enemy has been slaughtered and you have also despoiled your enemy. So this Mm -hmm. this drinking of celebration between brothers is bad and blameworthy. There's a (laughs) gloating in victory. The the, the next phase of this continual drinking is to be drunk into a stupor. And then a final phase of this drinking is um, um, like a, a, a drinking to death. They'll they'll drink themselves to death. The ones that were on God's holy mountain and started drinking will drink themselves to death. And there's a concept here probably that overlaps with the concept of the cup of God's wrath. So we see this like in Holy Week as well, don't we, um, where Jesus prays that this cup, Okay, a cup of suffering, you know, a cup of God's wrath will be taken from him. But, of course, he says not as he wills, but as his father wills. And Jesus, that's not the first time that he mentioned that cup. He had asked his his um, disciples, can you drink the cup that I drink? Of course, they said, oh, yeah, well, (laughs) I'm not sure that they were remembering back to what this cup. Is supposed to be and we see this in other prophets as well not just here in um, not just here in Obadiah so um, in the very end can we go to the map so in the very end um, these last couple verses where it talks about all these different places the Negev and um, the Shephelah and and things like that what it's saying Mm -hmm. is that basically hold on what it's saying is that (laughs) let me just take the cursor (laughs) is saying that um, the their land Um, After the Lord makes things right, it will extend from down here from the Negev where um, Abraham journeyed and where the well of Abraham is, and they'll possess this part here, the Shephelah by the Philistines, and they'll possess the land all the way up to here by Tyre and Sidon. And um, from Benjamin, they'll extend over here into Gilead. So basically what the prophecy is saying is from to north, south, east and west, the boundaries of the land, as it was promised to them in the book of Joshua, are going to be restored to them. So it's refulfilling fulfilling um, the promise that God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, the, the, um, the promise of land. Thank you. Um, It's also kind of hinting that maybe Israel and Judah will come back together again. The exiles of Israel, the exiles of Judah, they'll come back together again onto the holy Mount Zion. And um, at the very last verse, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, right? So the tribes of Jacob and Joseph, they will rule on Zion, they will rule Esau. Right, so Jacob is ruling Esau, and this is what we saw back in the Genesis narrative. And as I said, there is no other king mentioned here, um, not even the Messiah, really, unless we understand the Messiah to be the Lord, which which maybe we do. Which he is. But the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Uh, so this is the upshot of what happens in God's judgment through the Day of the Lord.
1: So I wrote, I wrote up a few possible applications, uh, what, what to learn not to do in terms of Edom and what to do in terms of the proper uh, response if we think about application of the book of Obadiah. Um, and uh, so so you can just read those on your own. They're pretty straightforward. Great. Well, thank you all for uh, listening to us if you have any questions you can email us and i think we're going to try and put the video somewhere (laughs) i'm not sure or put the link to the video if you want to look at it later very good thank you guys so much thank you john thank you stefana save up all your hard questions for them (laughs) (laughs) you guys thank you all for being on tonight it's been a good time together